Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. We are in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 21 this morning, in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles in the back there. Um, feel free to grab one of those. That's our gift to you. As you turn there to Mark, Mark chapter 14, let me review from last Sunday. We learn the difference between light and darkness, worship versus wickedness, uh, radical generosity and demonic betrayal. And we also met two people. We met Mary of Bethany. She's the light. She's the worshiper. She's the generous who out of her love for Jesus, she blessed him so greatly that her closest friends didn't understand her at that moment. The second person we met was Judas Iscariot. He represents the darkness and the wicked. And uh, he is also the betrayer of Jesus. But Mary, really, she was our leading actress last week. She anointed Jesus with oil, really an exceptional oil that, that most likely was a, a very costly family heirloom. Make no doubt about it, she didn't really care about the money. This was an act of worship for her. And this act of worship, it leads us to God's next step in His divine plan to save sinners. As we'll see today, that next step is, is Jesus celebrating Passover with His disciples. And as we're getting ready to find out here, this is not just any Passover. This is the preeminent Passover. We could say that this is the last Passover because what Jesus does, He installs, he, really He celebrates a new sacrament called the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of Jesus' substitutionary death. So in other words, Jesus, as an innocent man, He died in your place. Jesus' death, it, it satisfied the wrath of God for mankind's sin. It's called propitiation. Jesus' resurrection, it proves that God the Father's wrath has been appeased. So God the Father has accepted Jesus' life in place of yours, all because He walked out of His own grave. Today we're going to start a, a two-part message on the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're also going to deal with Judas's betrayal of Jesus. It's interesting here because the Gospel of Mark spends more time on betrayal than the actual institution of the Lord's Supper. Why is that? Well, let's find out, if you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 and following. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and he told them, Go into the city, 
and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples, they went out, they entered the city, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and, and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Well, well surely it's not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Father, the psalmist writes, Help me understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. Father, that is our prayer, that you would help us understand your word this morning. Teach us about the preeminent Passover. Teach us about the deep things that you have in your text. Meet us where we are, and may we live these things out this week. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Have a seat, guys. Thank you. All right, let's take a deeper look here. Verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? Well, Passover and the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, they are two of the most important festivals in the life of a Jew. Passover is a celebration of God supernaturally leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. And he chose a regular guy named Moses to lead his people out of, out of the hand of Pharaoh. God showed Pharaoh his power through Moses uh, with ten plagues. And the last plague, it was called the death, or it was the death of every firstborn son in Egypt. To protect his people, God told Israel to, to make a sacrifice by either killing a sheep or a goat, and then they were to smear that blood uh, all over the front door. Now, why would he have them do that? Well, to protect his people. Uh, God told Israel to make a sacrifice by, by killing uh, th that sheep or the goat, and then the blood was a, was a sign so that the angel of death would, would pass over the home itself. If there is no blood on the front door, the angel of death, he didn't pass over. What he did is he passed through. He passed through the home and he killed the family's firstborn son. So there's only two options to deal with this last plague. And really this plague is a sign of judgment on sin. So you got two options. Number one, the angel of death either passed over the home because a lamb was offered as a sacrifice and as a substitute in place of the firstborn son. Or number two, the angel of death passed through the home, killing the firstborn son as judgment because there was no other sacrifice prepared. That's why the feast is called the Passover. The second feast is called the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
The reason it's called unleavened bread is because leaven is a symbol of sin in Scripture. Uh, God's people are to be set apart from the world, to be separated from sin. So, um, really, the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is celebrated because of, of Israel's rapid exodus from Egypt right after Passover. Uh, and together, these feasts, they are a celebration together to remember what God did and how He provided for them. So, that's the context, that's the background of this text. Verse 12 the disciples, they ask, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? Well, you may have traditions for Thanksgiving and Christmas in your family. The Passover is, is also filled with lots of traditions for the Jews. The question in this verse is where? Where do you want us to have this celebration? Well, Jesus and the twelve, they're in Bethany. Bethany is only just a few miles down the, the street from Jerusalem. And we know from last week, Simon the leper threw a party for Jesus. And his house, obviously, it was big enough to throw that party, so it's big enough to host the Passover as well. Why not have it there? We also know that Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they also live in Bethany too. Uh, Jesus and the twelve, they stayed there many, many times over the past three years. So what's wrong with their home? Why don't they have it there? Well, there are two reasons. Number one, um, the Passover dinner could only be celebrated in the city walls of Jerusalem. And number two, they're on a strict time frame. The Passover meal, it had to be eaten between sundown and midnight on that Thursday night for the Galilean Jews. So that's the reason. That's why the, the disciples, they want to know where. How does Jesus respond? He says, well, in verse 13, he sent two of the disciples and he told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water, he's going to meet you. You need to follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He's going to show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations there. Now, pause. Does that sound a bit cryptic to you? I mean, why doesn't Jesus just give the, the disciples the address? Why, why doesn't he just say it's 123 Main Street? Wouldn't that be easier? Why doesn't he just tell them that? What's the deal with all the secrecy? Why does Jesus go all James Bond on the disciples? What's he doing? Well, Jesus, he's got this whole thing planned out. And the reason for the secrecy, it points back to last week, uh, last Sunday, with Judas. Jesus knows that his traitor is looming behind the scenes, waiting for the perfect time to arrest Jesus. So if Jesus would have said, hey guys, you know, we're going to meet at 123 Main Street at 8 o'clock on Thursday night for the Passover, Judas would have taken that information, he would have gone straight to the religious leaders, and they would have arrested Jesus there. That would have been an excellent spot for betrayal because Jesus is alone with his disciples. He's eating at night. He's away from the crowds. All the other people are celebrating Passover as well. Jesus, he obviously knew this, and that's, why, uh, and that's the reason Jesus is so secretive here. So, starting to sound like Mission Impossible to me. I don't know. So Judas, think about this, Judas is, is trapped with the twelve. This is kind of a group herd mentality, right? Uh, he can't go anywhere even if he wanted to. 
It's kind of like going on a double date and someone else is driving. Remember those days? You're trapped the whole night, whether you like it or not. That's where, that's where Judas finds himself. Verse 13, so he sent two of his disciples and he told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water is going to meet you. You need to follow him. Luke's gospel tells us that the two disciples are Peter and John. So Pete and John, they're supposed to be on the lookout for this guy carrying a jar of water. Now on the surface, that doesn't seem like a very good clue. I mean, aren't there thousands of men at this point carrying jars of water, getting ready for Passover inside the city walls of Jerusalem? I mean, what kind of sign is that? Well, it's actually a very, very good sign. And the reason is is this, men did not carry jars of water in the first century. Women did. Uh Uh-oh, somebody better better call Gloria Steinemann. She's not going to be happy about that. Somebody better call the ACLU. See, if a man needed to carry water, he did so with a skin, not with a jar. So this man would have stood out in a crowd. Most likely, he's going to carry this jar of water on his head. Secondly, does Jesus' mysterious instructions here, does it sound familiar? Very, it, it sounds similar to, to what Jesus told the disciples um, just a few days ago, so this is, this is going on Thursday night, just on Monday, Jesus rode in on a donkey with his triumphal entry. If you remember that story, he gave them the same kind of instructions. So once again, this shows us how Jesus is in complete control of every situation. So really, whether Jesus secretly prearranged the meeting or maybe he spoke from his supernatural foreknowledge, uh, we don't know. What we do know is that it happened just as he said. So verse 14, wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So a couple of things to note here in verse 14. Jesus says, the teacher says. Now, how many teachers, how many rabbis are walking around Jerusalem at Passover right now? Hundreds, hundreds upon hundreds. Uh, So Jesus uses a definite article here. He says, the teacher. He doesn't say a teacher, the teacher. So whoever this person is knows Jesus personally. And if I had to make my guess, I would say that this man was John Mark, that they're going to go to John Mark's home. John Mark is the one who's writing this gospel. Um, that's just speculation on my point, uh, on my part. Um, but, but notice here how personal Jesus makes this Passover uh, in verse 14. He says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? It's very, very personal. Jesus knows that this is the last extended conversation that he's going to have with the 12. It's a very, very special dinner. And yet, as we're going to find out here, it's filled with truth and feasting and betrayal. Kind of sounds like a reality TV show, right? All those elements. Verse 15, Jesus goes on. He says, I'm going to show you a large room upstairs. It's going to be furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So notice here that Jesus decided where, the, where they were going to eat the Passover meal. Uh, But the disciples still had to do all the work. 
Verse 16, so the disciples, they went out, they entered the city, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So they found it just as he had told them, just like the instructions to go fetch that donkey in Mark chapter 11. It, every detail was fulfilled. Verse 17, when evening came, he arrived with the twelve. So when evening came, so our calendar, our day starts at midnight for the new day, even though we really consider the, the beginning of the day when we begin our morning, when we wake up. Uh, the, the evening was the start of a new day on the Jewish calendar for the Galileans. So the Passover meal, it had to be eaten at night and it had to be finished at midnight. The Galilean Jews did this for centuries. And throughout Old Testament, millions of, of lambs were killed as, as part of this annual Passover festival. But what we have to realize here is that each one of those lambs, it points to the Lamb of God. In the Old Testament, those lambs were an innocent substitute for mankind's sin. It's a very real picture of, of the pending judgment that is due mankind. See, the, the problem with the sacrificial system is that none of those lambs nor the volume of the lambs could ever propitiate. There's no way. So in other words, the, the blood of the, of the animal could never satisfy God's wrath for human sin. The sacrificial system was a reminder of what it took to atone for sin. Um, the atonement, right? To, to have peace and to have reconciliation with God. And it really, it starts all the way back with Adam and Eve after they sinned. Remember, after they sinned, what they tried to do? They, they tried to clothe themselves with itchy fig leaves. Imagine that. Itchy fig leaves. Well, in God's mercy, right after they sinned, he, he steps in. He sheds the blood of an innocent animal in the Garden of Eden to properly clothe them. Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made clothing from the skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So the shedding of innocent blood here, it's not a one-time thing in the Old Testament. It starts right here in Genesis 3.21, but we also see it with Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. Uh, Genesis 4.2, Abel became a shepherd of the flocks, but Cain worked the ground. So we have Abel, he is a shepherd, he's taking care of livestock, but Cain is a farmer. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. So why did God reject Cain's offering? Why did he do that? Because vegetables don't make an acceptable offering for sin, right? A salad does not cover Cain's sin debt. There's ha there has to be blood. And more blood is shed throughout the, the Abrahamic covenant. And, and so why is this, why is blood so important as a substitute to God? Hebrews 9.22 tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So in other words, our sin, our rebellion against a holy God, it is so profane, it is so severe that someone must face the full wrath of God 
to pay that debt. Sin always equals death, always. Romans 6.23, the Apostle Paul says this, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So every time that you sin, a wage is credited to your account. So you have a pile of sin that must be paid for, and it can't be paid for by you. Why is that? Well, because you're not perfect. I mean, even if you wanted to give your life, you couldn't. Because you've, you've stolen, you've lied, you've lusted, you've been disobedient to your parents, you've taken the, the Lord's name in vain. We've all done these things, every single one of us. We're all guilty. And look, guys, I know I'm the guy sitting up here, but I'm exhibit A on this, all right? And yet, all of those things, that's why Jesus is having this Passover. The blood is key. So verse 17, when evening came, he arrived with the 12. Now pause, wait a second. Jesus arrived with the 10, not the 12. Because remember, Pete and John, they're, they're already at the house getting everything ready. Oops. Do we have an error in Scripture? Is it possible that Peter and John, maybe they got everything ready and then they returned to Bethany and they walked back? That's possible, but not, but not likely. That, that phrase there, if you want to put it in, in quotes in your Bible, arriving with the 12, it's simply a general reference to the disciples. It's kind of like saying, you know, the whole town showed up for service today. It's just saying there's a lot of people here. So there is no error in Scripture. Verse 18, while they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, we've all seen the painting of, of The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. Jesus is in the middle. Uh, the 12 are around him. We've got that painting in the fellowship hall. Um, sorry to disappoint you, but that's not how this went down. <laughs> Scripture tells us exactly how this evening went. Verse 18, while they were reclining and eating. So Jesus and the 12, they ate Roman style. Meaning they laid on the floor, they've got some cushions, their heads were close to the, to the table so they could eat like this, and their feet were this way. Very, very different from the first Exodus, right? Because the Israelites, uh, during the Exodus, they were to eat standing up, ready to go. They were ready to run. But by the first century, a reclining, this relaxed posture uh, was preferred. And, and the reason for that is because this, this meal lasted for hours. The Passover consisted of several characteristics. It generally began with a prayer of thanking God for His deliverance and for His protection. The prayer was followed by the first, first of four cups of diluted red wine, Next came a ceremonial hand washing, and that hand washing, it, it symbolized the need to be uh, cleansed of sin, and then they would eat the roasted lamb. Uh, they would also sing a hymn to end. Now, that's just a very, that's a very broad overview. There's a lot more to it, uh, but that's the, that's the concept there. Verse 18, so Jesus says, during, the me during this meal, he says this, truly I tell you, one of you guys is going to betray me one who is eating with me. 
So at some point during the meal, Jesus changes the subject and he drops this bomb of betrayal. Now, our gospel writer, Mark, he spends five verses on betrayal. Why does he do that? Key point number one, Judas represents all of us at some degree. Judas represents all of us at some degree. We've all betrayed Jesus. We've all broke our promises. We've all been unfaithful. Uh, that word betray there, it means to give over. You just, you don't care anymore. This really is the worst thing that can happen in a marriage when a spouse checks out. When someone in the marriage becomes numb or indifferent, the game's over at that point. They've lost the fight. The pain is too great. It really, it's the result of emotional exhaustion. King David, he also knows what betrayal feels like. He penned this in Psalm 55, 12. Now, it's not an enemy who insults me. Otherwise, I could bear it. It's not a foe who rises up against me. Otherwise, I could hide from him. But it's you, a man who is my peer, my companion, my good friend. We used to have close fellowship. We walked with the crowd into the house of God. So David knows betrayal, just like you. You've been betrayed as well. We, we can all identify with being handed over at some level. So back to verse 18 here. Jesus says, there is one of you who is eating with me. So Jesus goes on to identify that the betrayer's in the room. It's one of the 12. And for Jesus to say this, man, this was scandalous. In the first century, to betray a friend after eating a meal, that is the worst kind of treachery. In our day, in our time, you know, we, we have social gatherings all the time. But when the Jews eat, ate together, this demonstrated a brotherhood. This was family. And it represented love and peace and trust. David, once again, he writes this in Psalm 41.9. He says, even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. The disciples did not see this coming. At least 11 of the 12 didn't. When Jesus drops this bomb, you may have heard audible gasps. Maybe some colorful language. Keep in mind, these men are fishermen, right? On the other hand, there, there may have been dead silence. Verse 19, they began to be distressed and to say to him, one by one, they said this, well, well surely it's not me. Jesus, surely it's, it, it can't be me. They're distressed, they're, they're sorrowful, they're unhappy. This is not how you're supposed to spend Passover. You're not supposed to celebrate Passover this way. So the disciples, they suspected nothing. There is a shock that just ran through their whole body. And guys, if you were to take a vote at this moment, I'm guessing that nobody saw this coming. Nobody suspected Judas of all people. Judas was so good at hiding his hypocrisy and the wickedness that they trusted, they trusted them, the whole group. With He's the treasurer. He's the money guy. 
verse 20, he said to them, Jesus reiterates this. He says, it's one of the 12 guys. It's the one who's dipping bread in the bowl with me. So it's like the 11 disciples. They are so stunned. They didn't even hear that. Jesus has to repeat himself here. But notice Jesus doesn't identify Judas. Why why doesn't he do that? I think it's to prevent a fist fight. I think Pete would have grabbed somebody in a headlock. You know what I'm saying? These, These men are big, and they're hairy, and they're stinky, and they know how to fight. I mean, they they would have had no problem taking Judas out back. And then this is amazing. This this blows me away. It's at this moment we also see the overwhelming grace of Jesus. Jesus is giving Judas time to make a voluntary confession. John's gospel gives us more detail here. John 13, 22. The disciples, they started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one that Jesus loved, was reclining close to Jesus. And Simon Peter, he motioned to him to find out who he was talking about. So John leans back against Jesus. And he says, Lord, who is it? Who are you talking about? And Jesus replies, he says, well, he's, he's the one I'm going to give this piece of bread to after I dip it. This is the one. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas. And then after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told them, told Judas, what you're getting ready to do, you need to do it quickly. Although Jesus doesn't identify Judas in Mark's gospel, he gives everybody a clue here. Due to the seating arrangement, there are multiple bowls around the table, or on the floor, I guess I should say. Jesus takes a piece of bread, he dips it in the dish, he gives it to Judas. Dear friends, this is, this is no small gesture here. What Jesus is saying, this really is an act of love. This is a gesture of friendship. This is unbelievable what Jesus is doing. Same thing happened when Boaz invited Ruth to fellowship with him. In Ruth 2.14, Boaz says to Ruth, he says, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So in in a very similar fashion, Boaz was reaching out to, to Ruth. Jesus was reaching out to Judas. So Jesus was saying something very quietly something very indiscreetly to Judas. He was saying, here's my friendship. Here's my forgiveness. All you have to do is accept it. Now pause. Because it's a text like this where many of us have questions about God's sovereignty. We got God's sovereignty over here, and then we got man's responsibility over here. In other words, if God predestined the betrayal of Judas, how can God hold Judas responsible for that betrayal? I mean, if you were Judas on judgment day, wouldn't you say, hey, hey, God, wait a second. This isn't fair. I was just carrying out your will. In fact, if it wasn't for my betrayal, you know, the atonement, that that would never happen. And your propitiation, that, that would have been satisfied. 
And by the way, your people would still be in their sins if it weren't for me, God. You used me to bring Jesus to the cross, and it's through that cross that your people are now redeemed. <laughs> so God, I, I think I deserve some kind of heavenly medal or something. That's what I think. Is that how this conversation with God is going to go on Judgment Day? Everybody go like this. No. No, 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 no. See, it's in events like this to where we see the intersection between the secret counsel of God and then we have the wicked schemes and the plots and the conspiracies of mankind. It's called the doctrine of concurrence. It's when these, it's when these two things, that it comes together... We've got the sovereign will of a holy God over here. We've got the earthly sinful will of mankind over here. And it seems like these two wills clash. We look at the will of God and the will of man and we, we think that they're incompatible. We can understand them separately. But how, do, how, do they, how are they reconciled together as one? We can grasp the truth of each statement but we're confused as to how they work together. And, and the church typically deals with the doctrine of concurrence by undercutting one truth and overemphasizing the other. Uh, we see this all the time with Calvinism and Arminianism. And truth be told, we don't like this doctrine. We don't like the doctrine of concurrence. And the reason we don't like it is because we, we prefer to tie up all of these intellectual arguments into clear, concise uh, statements about systematic theology. And yet the Word of God has a lot to say about this doctrine. Really, it's a mystery. Let me show you a couple. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things, they belong to us. And praise God, he has revealed those things to us and our children forever so that we may follow all of the words of this law. Proverbs 16, 9, a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Proverbs 19, 21, many plans are in a person's heart, but the Lord's decree, that's going to prevail. So we see all these things throughout Scripture. How do we reconcile these two biblical truths without a church split, without a church fight? Right? We got all the Calvinists over here, all the Arminians over here, and you guys just get at it. How do we do this? How do we reconcile this? Because both truths are true. Charles Spurgeon said this. He, he said, I wouldn't even try. I wouldn't reconcile friends. So how can we blame Judas if Judas was predestined to betray God? How do we do that? Well, dear friends, we cannot downplay our sin nor the power of sin around us when we talk about this mystery. It's not like God supernaturally strong-armed Judas to do this. That is not what happened. We are not robots. We are morally culpable human beings. So key point number two. What did happen is that God sovereignly worked his will through the sinful choices of Judas. 
God sovereignly worked his will through the sinful choices of Judas. It is written in Psalm 51.3, For I am conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me. And it's against you and you alone that I have sinned, and I've done this evil in your sight. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Wow. Did you guys catch that? God tells us that before we could choose between good and evil, we were born evil. In other words, Judas did exactly what Judas wanted to do. Just as a dog barks and a cat purrs, sinners sin. And wow, did Judas choose to sin. See, Judas' problem, it's the same problem we all have. And that is, he he didn't get the result that he wanted. When we sin, it's just a matter of time before we start to experience these consequences. And the Word of God says that those consequences will lead to death. That's precisely what happened to Judas. And yet... God brought salvation out of Judas's betrayal. God caused redemption out of Judas's treachery. <laughs> In other words, God is the ultimate chess player. That's who God is. Brings us to key point number three. Rather than making the doctrine of concurrence a point of contention, make it a point of worship. Rather than making the doctrine of concurrence a point of contention with God, make it a point of worship. And we see this no better stated than in Psalm 139.6. This wondrous knowledge, all these things that I do not understand, this wondrous knowledge is beyond me. I don't get it. I don't understand it. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. And because we're unable to reach it, dear friends, it should not confuse us or make us mad at God. Prayerfully, it'll drive us to a state of worship because we trust him with it. By the way, if you're interested in learning more about the doctrine of concurrence, there's a great little book. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. It's very, very good. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. All right, so that's the betrayal, verse 21, for the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. You go, wow. Everything that is about to happen to Jesus has been planned. It has been foreordained by God. The details about Jesus' suffering and his crucifixion and his resurrection, they are all throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12. And not only that, but they're reiterated in the New Testament. Peter summarizes this in Acts 2.23. He says, though Jesus was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and his foreknowledge... You, the Romans, or you, the Jews, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. That's a great verse when we talk about the doctrine of concurrence. So verse 21, Jesus goes on. He says, woe. 
Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Notice this. Jesus does not apologize or defend Judas. He does not apologize or defend the doctrine of concurrence. That's what we're talking about here. Yes, God used Judas's sinful and his willful choices to accomplish his divine purpose. And yes, Judas is still personally culpable for those choices. In fact, Judas is so guilty that Jesus says, woe. That word woe there, it's more than a warning. It really is a pronouncement of divine judgment and damnation. But at the same time, it's a lament of Jesus' frustrated love over Judas. It really is an interesting dichotomy here between God's wrath and human pity. Verse 21 is another invitation for Judas to repent. It's a warning. And yet Judas doesn't heed that warning like many of us. As we know, Judas does indeed betray Jesus. Judas, he does, he feels sorry for what he has done, but it's a, it's a worldly sorrow. He never repents from it. There's an old saying that goes, sin, it makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. Oh, come on, that's funnier than that. <laughs> I'm going to zip it right now and stick to my notes. We see that here with Judas, don't we? Judas goes from bad to worse. He betrays Jesus and then he takes his own life. Key point number four, that the guilt of Judas serves as a warning to each of us. The guilt of Judas serves as a warning to each of us. When Jesus prophesied that one of the disciples would betray him, what did the, what'd they do, the disciples? Nobody stood up and said, it's Judas. I knew it was you. <laughs> Nobody did that. What did they do? They looked, they looked inward and they said, whoa, surely it's not me. Why did they ask that question? Because each one of those men knew that they were capable of it just like we all are. They looked inward. They examined themselves. It is written in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. So next week, we're going to learn how Jesus turns this preeminent Passover into the first Lord's Supper. Some call it communion, the Eucharist. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper next week. And I know it's been a few months since we've celebrated. Some of you thought that I forgot. <laughs> I did not forget. Uh, there's a reason for that. There's a reason that we've taken a break. And my prayer is that each one of us individually will do exactly what Scripture tells us to do, and that is to examine ourselves, to confess our sin in preparation for the Lord's Supper next Sunday. And not only that, that we would make things right if we've sinned against another. We would go to that person, make things right. 
And then lastly, that we would examine ourselves as a church, as the body of Christ. Are we doing what the Lord has, has told us to do here at River Bible Church? Well, Father in heaven, you have given us a, a weighty passage today. I pray, Father, that uh, as you have taught us, that we continue to ponder and, and meditate and to seek your face in all of these things. The Apostle Paul says that we are to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith, that we are to examine ourselves. I pray that this week is a week of examination for us, Lord God, before we come back on Sunday and we learn part two of the preeminent Passover, uh, the institution of this sacrament called the Lord's Supper. Uh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for teaching us that it is only by the person and the work of Jesus Christ, his blood that was shed as the Lamb of God, and him walking out of that grave three days later, that we can come and have peace with you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Yeah.